The proportion of things tells you a lot. My wife, Beth, is a great cook. She knows how to put a fine Christmas meal together. But I'll tell you, my plate, no matter how good all of it is, my plate is meat heavy and vegetable light. <laughs> That's how my appetite rolls. The proportion of things also tells us a lot about God's will as found in his word. Usually the more God has to say about something in his word, the more he's emphasizing that, the more he is giving that importance. We are very early into our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament book of Hebrews. After this sermon will be 14 verses only into this wonderful book. But if you were to take an inventory of the first 14 verses of Hebrews, you would find that six of the 14 verses stress the inferiority of angels to Jesus Christ. Six out of the first 14 verses. I want to read those 14 verses with you. Hebrews 1 at verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee? And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me? And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. And as a mantle thou wilt roll them up, as a garment they will also be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Six of the first 14 verses of Hebrews underscore the superiority of Jesus, the inferiority relative to Jesus of angels. Very quickly, let me skim through these 14 verses with you. Why is Jesus Christ 
Superior to angels, first, as Savior, he is superior to angels. Verses 3 and 4 tell us that. Second, Jesus, as Son of God, is superior to the angels. Just flat out says that, verse 5. Jesus, as firstborn and of first importance, is superior to the angels. He is to be worshipped by them. That's verse 6. Remember, firstborn in the Greek doesn't mean he uh, was the first literally born. He was eternal, coexistent with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit before creation. What it means in first importance means a first importance. Firstborn is first importance. We talked about gasoline being of first importance to an automobile. Going on, Jesus, as ruling king, dispatches his angels. That makes him superior to them. That's verses 7, 8, and 9. Jesus, as creator, is superior to the angels. He made them. Verse 10. And Jesus, as future judge, is superior to the angels. Verses 11 and 12. Carrying on, God the Father has made Jesus the sovereign ruler over all. So Jesus is superior to the angels because a sovereign ruler over all, he's sovereign ruler over the angels. Verse 13. And Jesus is superior to the angels because the angels are merely serving spirit beings who help assist saved individuals like you and me when Jesus tells them to do so. Verse 14. We ought to wonder why six out of the first 14 verses of Hebrews go out of their way to put Jesus and angels in their proper places. Well, perhaps a little background will help us here. As the saying goes, those who do not remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So said George Santayana. The first readers of the book of Hebrews were Jewish Christians. That may sound like an oxymoron to you, but it isn't. Examples of oxymorons would be uh, clearly confused or deafening silence. It is not an oxymoron to have the term Jewish Christian. Because after all, Christ actually completes Judaism. And Jesus Christ in his humanity was Jewish. So the term Jewish Christians ought not to strike us as being odd. These Jewish Christians who first read the epistle we name Hebrews had turned in courage from Judaism to trust Jesus to be their Messiah Yeshua, Lord and Savior. And these Jewish Christians were on the edge of their seats when this letter came to them. They were on the edge of their seats, not with an I can't wait anticipation, but instead they were on the edge of their seats with a this could be really, really bad anxiety. Why would they have been anxious? Because the big bad machines called Rome and the Jewish religious leaders were not at all okay with them giving Jesus their best loyalty and love. The Roman emperor and the Jewish religious power brokers were alike in their jealousy. Neither tolerated competition very well. Both were the happiest when they were the heaviest on the dominated persons around them's mind and throats. And so these Jewish Christians that first read Hebrews must not have felt very good to have both Rome and the Pharisee, Sadducee crowd standing on their throats, demanding of them that they change the place that Jesus had in their lives. And given 
their jealousies and insecurities, both the Roman emperor and the Jewish religious leaders intimidated hard to try to pull the Jewish Jesus followers back into the respective spider webs of control. Rome's plan to discourage Jewish Christians from taking Jesus more seriously than the Roman emperor was crucifixion. After Jesus' crucifixion, tens of thousands of other crucifixions were carried out. History tells us back then that sometimes up to 1,000 crucifixions took place on the same day. It was simple, but it was sad. If a Jewish Christian back then in any way rubbed Rome the wrong way, he or she was crucified. Publicly put to death on a cross. The Jewish religious leaders, well, they also had a plan to discourage the Jewish Christians from believing in Jesus and then following Jesus. And their plan was the temple. They kicked pro-Jesus Jews right out of the temple, totally left them out in the cold. And that turn of events caused a tsunami wave of problems for those Jews who were kicked out of the temple. Shattered families, tarnished reputations, lost jobs and impossible livelihoods, no chance of finding work, isolation, rejection, shame, no hope of any human help from any unconvinced about Jesus Jews. <laughs> it was certainly not their best life now. Nor was it name it, then claim it from God. Excommunication from the Jewish temple was a seemingly impossible maze to exit. And it was that very maze that every Jewish Christian who was kicked out of the temple had to enter. Today we need to realize that all of these political and religious intimidations were constantly upon the first Jewish believers in Christ who first read the book of Hebrews. They woke up feeling Rome and the religious Jewish leaders on their throats. They drifted off to sleep every day with those threats before them. That is not ancient history. That is last week's news in China. The Chinese Communist government has overturned a bill, in, in principle at least, to give religious freedom in China, authored in 1982. And last week, the Chinese government began to burn crosses, to burn Bibles, to try to make Christians recant their faith in Christ by signing certain documents. Everything old is new again. 
Going back to the first readers of Hebrews, frankly, it would have been a whole lot easier for the first readers to either recant their faith in Jesus or redefine him to be something which the Romans and the Jewish religious bigoties could have stomached. Recant is a word that we don't often use, but it means to say that one no longer holds to a belief. Apparently, if the Jewish Christians back then would have stopped attending house churches, and if they would have started discounting and demoting the Lord Jesus to the level of being less than an angel, then the heat would have gone away. Both Rome and the Jewish temple leaders would have backed off and played nice. It must have been a tremendous temptation to recant their faith in Christ or to redefine Jesus. Back then, the Jews had a top five that was most important to their faith. At the top of the list was God. Number two was Moses. Number three was the law. Number four was the angels who delivered the law to Moses. And number five were the prophets. And so the book of Hebrews makes the case that the Lord Jesus Christ is superior to Moses, superior to the law, superior to the angels, and superior to the prophets. Well, travel back in time with me in your imagination for a conversation that could have taken place between these Jewish Christians. Moshe, we know that he's God, but just say he's one of the prophets. Play it safe. And yet the book of Hebrews, with a compelling, riveting whisper, said, no, the truth is he is God. Better than the angels, better than the law, better than Moses equal to God. Messiah, Son of God, God. With all of this background music, it ought to be no wonder that six of the first 14 verses of the book of Hebrews makes the point that Jesus is superior to everything. Is that how he is to you this morning? Jesus Christ, is he superior to everything else in your life? Does it show up in how you spend money? Does it show up in how you use time? Does it show up as to how you get involved in this assembly or our visitors in the assemblies you come from? If anybody looking at your life would they have good reason to see evidence that you see Jesus Christ as superior to everything? For all of these good reasons, the first Jewish Christian readers of the book of Hebrews were told, don't recant your faith in Jesus and don't redefine Jesus, especially If you were to do so, you think it will make the Roman emperor and the Jewish religious elite happy. (laughs) I've been thinking 
when the heat is on me. I am not open to recanting my faith in Jesus Christ. But rarely, if I'm honest, I am tempted to do some redefining of Jesus. You know, when I'm sitting in our radio studio and recording radio programs for ZNS, I mean, let's be real. Let's face it. A lot of persons listen to ZNS. It's our national radio station. And beyond that, all of those hundreds and hundreds, maybe thousands of listeners, they represent a whole host of worldviews, some of which are antagonistic toward Christ and the Bible. So, if I'm honest with you, on very rare occasions, my question to myself goes something like this. Am I going to speak with Jesus' authority on the stated truth of the Bible on adultery or gambling or homosexuality or capital punishment or gender issues or the fact that marriage is only to be between a man and a woman? Or will I redefine my Lord to make him more mainstream, to make him more modern, to make him more marginalized? You know, the temptation in that radio studio for me is to be as slippery as a slice of uncooked bacon. Hard to nail down. Person-pleasing. Unfirm in my beliefs. A chameleon. You know what that would sound like? But on this particular issue, listeners, it's a controversial issue. And there seems to be some debate on the issue among biblical scholars. Yuck. That would not be uncooked bacon. That would be green bacon. Sickening. So please hear me carefully. For 55 years as a Christian and now for 31 years as a pastor, the Lord has strengthened me and I've never redefined Jesus and I've never redefined the Bible and I'm not about to start. Never. And I can truly thank the Lord for that intestinal fortitude that came from him to me. (laughs) In my past, in Canada pastoring, there was a time when I was quite aware that siding with the Bible could easily cost me a lot. The situation was that the sitting government in Canada at that time had a bill on the floor of the House of Commons that would deem the Bible hate literature. And so if any Canadian, if that bill passed, if any Canadian pastor preached a passage about abortion being wrong, he could go to jail. Or a pastor could preach a a, a marriage being between a man and a woman could go to jail. Homosexuality not being in the will of God, if he preached that, if that bill went through, you could go to jail. On the Sunday night before the vote in the House on Monday morning, 
I told our church family what was at stake and to phone their member of parliament and express the desire that he or she would vote against the bill. And then I told the saints gathered the Sunday night before the Monday vote, I said, I'll tell you this. If this bill passes, I will not back down from preaching the Bible. And if I go to jail, there's an elder that'll preach the word of God. And when he goes to jail, there's another elder that will preach the word of God. And when he goes to jail, another elder will preach the word of God. And when we're out of elders, because they're all in jail, then the deacons will start preaching the word of God. By God's tremendous mercy, the vote in the House defeated the bill by one vote. And so by God's grace, I stand before you to make you a promise that I will never redefine the Lord Jesus Christ, nor will I redefine his word. So let me step back. Let me be clear. To be clear, the first readers of Hebrews For them, the bump in the road was, would they go back to Judaism? Would they redefine Jesus as being merely some rabble-rousing rabbi who was less than God, less than Moses, less than the law, less than the angels, and less than the prophets so that they could keep their jobs and skip crucifixion? That was their bump in the road. My bump in the road is mild. My bump in the road is, will I redefine Jesus as being one possible voice equal to every other societal voice on things like adultery or gambling or homosexuality or capital punishment or gender issues or marriage between a man and a woman only? My bump in the road is, will I try to attempt to win for myself some hollow and shameful credibility with the liberal academia and media of the Commonwealth of the Bahamas? And I won't. What about for you? I don't mean the person beside you. I don't mean the person in front of you or behind you. I mean, what about for you? What is your bump in the road? What are you tempted to redefine Jesus in? Holding your job? Supporting the police? Returning stolen money? What's your bump in the road? Dear body of Christ, the incredible body of Christ, we can't and we won't redefine Jesus. That's not an option for us. Because he's our Lord, because he's our Savior, because he's not one of many equal voices on these hot-button current-time moral issues. He's Jesus. He's the truth. He's Jesus. He's Lord. And he's Jesus. He is Savior. He's Jesus. He's the head of the church, the Savior of the body. He's Jesus. And we bend to him. He is not bent by us. 
And the Lord Jesus is not less than God or less than Moses or less than the Old Testament law or less than the angels or less than the Old Testament prophets. Jesus Christ is under none of these, but all of these are under him. So, Calvary Bible Church will never recant our faith in Christ. Calvary Bible Church will never redefine Jesus. The church in China is not rolling over and playing dead this week. They are taking their worship services outdoors in the parks. <laughs> they are singing their songs that exalt the Lord Jesus in the open. They are preaching the word of God unafraid. They're giving out tracts to the Chinese who bicycle by their outdoor worship services. May we do the same. If the circumstances call for it, may we do the same. Whatever the cost, we will have to pay. Polycarp was one of the early church fathers. He was the bishop of Smyrna. And one day he was arrested and sentenced to death. Why? Because he loved Jesus publicly, preached Jesus unashamedly. That's why. And so one day, Polycarp was arrested and sentenced to death. He was bound to the stake in order to be burned alive until he was dead for believing in and preaching Jesus Christ. Polycarp was old when this happened. We might be able to say he was a persecuted pensioner. He was a sentenced senior citizen. Before they lit the fire to begin the execution, they gave him the bishop, a way of escape. They said, if you will simply recant your faith in Jesus Christ, we will let you go free. <laughs> this is what Polycarp said facing the flames from the stake, and I quote, Eighty and six years have I served Christ, nor has he ever done me any harm. How then could I blaspheme my king who saved me? I bless thee for deeming me worthy of this day and this hour that I may be among the martyrs and drink the cup of my Lord Jesus Christ. End of quote. With that, they lit the wood and when the flames somehow would not touch his body, they stabbed him to death. Oh, precious, incredible body of Christ called Calvary Bible Church. We will not recant our faith in Jesus. And we will not 
redefine him either. No matter what persecution of Christianity may reach our now peaceful shores. What we will take into that eventuality is what we have before we go into that eventuality. May our faith in him be real and practical and daily so that when that persecution comes, we will not recant our faith and we will not redefine Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are high and lifted up. There is none like unto you. How grateful we are for the first readers, the Jewish Christians, who didn't back away and go back to Judaism and live happily ever after. God, help us to know what we believe about Jesus because we're students of the Bible. And Lord, what we believe about Jesus, may it shape and impact all of our lives. Lord, with your calling always comes your enablement. May we know the victory that Christ has won for us on the cross. For we pray this in Jesus' precious, powerful, and sovereign name. Amen.